0: You have all been there before, you have all seen it, uh, you, you know what it is, you go out to the uh, mailbox and there is a very distinct looking envelope there, it's all frilly, the ink is in gold and it's written in some fancy kind of handwriting and you open it and you find inside that envelope is another envelope, right? Then you open that envelope, inside of that is another envelope and inside of that is a wedding invitation, Right? So you go, oh, glory, we get to go to a wedding, right? Right, guys? Right. So, um, and you think, gosh, they'll probably be dancing and all kinds of stuff. It's just great. All the guys go, hooray. So, anyway, um, so you walk into the building and you find your seats, and one of the things you notice is that up on the platform, uh, looking a little bit better than this, there are some candles that are set up, and you've seen this before, right? Let me back this up so you guys can all see what I'm talking about. And already these candles, two of them are already burning, right? And one of them is not yet burning. My thumb is burning. Um, And you walk in and you see, and you go, Ah, they're going to do that candle ceremony thing, right? And you've all seen it before. So then there comes a time when the music changes, and a bunch of guys come out looking really uncomfortable in their suits, and they stand there, and then all of a sudden the music changes again, and everybody turns to the back, and this vision of loveliness comes walking through the door in a beautiful white gown, and everybody goes, ah, and she comes in, right? And then there's this who gives this woman, blah, blah, blah. The pastor talks for too long, and all You're thinking is I can't wait to see what they do with those candles, right? And then um you finally get to this place where they take the 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 bride and the groom and they bring them up, and and well, they're already there, actually. They take the bride and the groom and they bring them over to the table, and the pastor starts to talk about the meaning of these candles, okay? So I need some help. So, Dave and Pat, you guys are newlyweds. Why don't you guys come on up? Okay. You guys are going to be our, yes, hooray for the bride and groom. Um, Come up and stand behind this so the photographer can get all the right pictures and everything like that, okay? And what happens, right, is that uh, the pastor talks about how this candle represents Pat's life and how uh, it's, she comes from a certain family and she has all of this background and this is her and the candle on the other side is Dave's life and all of that, his story and how they're about to come together and then they pick up the candles and they marriage the flame together on the other wick, if they can, and everyone goes, ah, and... And then, no, no, don't, don't you do that. Set it back down. And then they go back to their seats. No, that's not what they do. But these guys are going to go back to their seats. Thanks, guys. Right? So we've all seen this. We've all been to these uh, events. And then the pastor talks about how this life represented one and this life represented the other. And now we have a new flame burning. And that new flame represents the new unit right the married unit that the two have now become one okay and we get this visual and you saw pat was about to blow out the candle that's typically what is done usually when i do um, weddings if we're doing a unity candle i encourage them not to blow out the other candle and the reason i tell them not to blow out the other candle is that when the two become one they don't cease to be individuals do they You you still have your own interest, you still have your own personality, you still have your own history and background and all of those kinds of things. You are not the same person, but so the two continue to be individuals, but somehow, and this is the mystery of it all, and this is why we do it with some sort of visual aid, because somehow in the mystery of it all, the two remain two and become one. And the Bible calls that a mystery. And so I'm going to just let that continue to burn while I preach today because this is the picture I want us to get. Before we can really understand what we need to understand about Ephesians 5, we have to start in the beginning. So I want you to open your Bibles to page like two. Go to the book of Genesis and go to Genesis chapter 2. Now as you're turning there, if you're having trouble finding Genesis, it's right at the beginning. Um, as you're turning there, let me tell you what's been going on. Genesis chapter one basically gives us this picture of the creation story. And it tells us that uh, on day one, God created and it was good. And then day two, he created some more. It was good. All the way through day six, and it was very good. And on day six, he created man, right? And then we get to verse 18. And it says in uh, Genesis 2:18, then, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Let's just stop there. If you had been reading through Genesis 1 up to this point, you would have seen, day one he created, it was good. Day two he created, it was good. Day three he created, it was good. And as I said, all the way through, through day six, when he creates man, and it says, and it was very good. So everything God has made is good, amen? He makes it, it's good. 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 And then you get to chapter 2, verse 18. And for the first time in the history of the world, something is not good. It says, it is not good for the man to be alone. So God, God makes Adam in his image and, and Adam is alone. And God says, this is not good. And so he decides, here's what I'm going to do. Look at the rest of verse 18. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I'm going to make him a helper. Now, we need to think about what this means. Because if God has made a helper, you may have a connotation in your mind of what a helper is. Like like maybe if you're a carpenter and you have an apprentice who works with you, he's your helper. He's the guy who goes and gets the tools out of the truck. He's the guy who puts stuff away at the end of the job. He's your assistant, right? Or maybe if you're an executive, you have a secretary or an executive assistant who is your helper, and, and that person does the things that you can't really be troubled to do because you're so busy doing executive things. Or, or maybe if you, you think of a child helping his dad when he's building a shed out in the back or something, and the little four-year-old says, I want to help, and the dad says, sure, you can help, but we all know that the helper is really in the way, right? Right? but you're doing it for the relationship. So a lot of us, when we think of a helper, we're thinking of a servant, we're thinking of an assistant, we're thinking of a secretary or something along those lines. For now, it's not clear. What does he mean by a helper? But let me tell you what is clear from this passage. A man needs help. That much is clear, right? That much is clear. Picture this. God makes Adam... And he is the perfect man. Those of you ladies who have always been wanting the perfect man to come along, he ain't coming, right? (laughs) He passed away, but he was in the garden. He was the perfect man. Picture this. No sin, no no decay, no anything falling apart. However God said, man, a man should be like this. That's how Adam was. So picture that in your minds. Some of you ladies are picturing like a Chippendales dancer or something. Change... (laughs) I can see what's in your minds, right? If you had, just, just picture me and you'll have some sense, okay? Just an idea, right? Perfect man. Okay, so you have a perfect man. And yet, even with this perfect man, it is not good for him to be alone because he needs help. All kidding aside, that's fascinating. That, that, that every person in and of themselves is somehow not quite without need. And so the interesting thing is, he says, I'm going to make a helper, and we're going, yeah, an assistant, a protege, a a sidekick, a girl Friday, something like that. But when you look up the Hebrew word there that is for helper, it's, it's translated, depending on the text, either helper or help. And it's all over the Old Testament, this Hebrew word. And the place that you find it the most often is in the book of Psalms. And I put some uh, Psalms up there on the screen for you. We're going to look at. um, But do you know what's interesting? Do you know who this word helper refers to the most often in Scripture? God. God is called the helper. So if you've got this picture in your mind, if you have this idea in your mind that a helper is someone who is less than, remember God is a helper. If you have in your mind uh, someone who is to be ordered around and not take it seriously, remember, God is a helper. And we're going to see this in Psalm chapter 32, or what does that say? Psalm chapter 33, verse 20. In Psalm thirty-three twenty, 20, we see this. And there, we could see this all throughout the Psalms. I just picked three. Psalm thirty-three twenty: 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Exact same Hebrew word. If we look at Psalm chapter 70 verse 5, we're going to see it again, slightly different point of view. Psalm 70 verse 5 says this, but I am afflicted and needy, hasten to me, O God, you are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. So whoever it is that he's calling to and asking for him to be a deliverer is the one he calls help and Lord and deliverer. It's God, right? Go to Psalm 146. And we're going to look at Psalm 146, verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So whatever you've got in your mind about what a helper is, we have to let the Scripture inform it, right? And what it is in the Old Testament when God says that he created a helper for Adam, it is not an assistant, it is not a secretary, it is not an underling. In fact, it goes on to tell us what it is. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, look again in verse 18, the second half of the verse, I will make a helper suitable for him. He's going to make a helper that is suitable for him. And what does suitable mean? I I put this picture of a jigsaw puzzle up there because that was the best idea I could come up with. Suitable means corresponding to. In other words, when one thing is made to fit with another thing, then it is suitable. It's corresponding. Two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. You can't just randomly pick up two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and try to jam them together and end up with something that is uniform, right? Right? they have to be corresponding to one another. And that's the idea. They're corresponding. Here's another illustration of this. I had this um, mug sitting on my desk. It's just one of these coffee tumblers that that so many of us have, right? So this coffee tumbler comes with a lid, which is great, because if you spill it in the worship center, you don't end up with stains on the carpet, okay? So I have this cup, and it has a lid. The lid fits the cup perfectly. So perfectly that even if it's filled with coffee, I could shake it up and down and it's not going to spill. Why? Because the person who made the cup designed the lid to go with the cup. Does that make sense? So I can't just go, hey, listen, I've got a cup and I've got got a lid. Can I borrow your coffee? I won't drink it. I'll give it back to you. Okay? So I I say I got this this cup. I'm going to give you this lid. All right. See, here's the deal. I take this lid and I try to fit it in, it doesn't work. Why not? The cup wasn't made for the lid and the lid wasn't made for the cup. It's not suitable. Thanks, Sean. So here's the deal. Put that lid back on. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the deal. Um, When God says that he is going to make a helper that is suitable for Adam, what he's saying is, I'm going to custom design one who is the perfect fit. And so the next thing he does is funny. He brings a bunch of animals. And the animals come one at a time, and Adam's job is to name the animals. And you, you look at that and you go, boy, God, what were you thinking? Did you think maybe Adam would want to get with a raccoon and that would be great or something like that? No, that's not the point. The point is just the opposite. The opposite. The point is that as he keeps bringing these animals to Adam, he's illustrating the point for Adam that he is in need of one who is suitable for him, one who is corresponding to him. And obviously none of those animals are corresponding to him. So he creates a wife. Pick it up in verse um, 22. Let's pick it up in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So where did Eve come from? God custom designed her. She came from God. And what was the raw material that God was working with when he made Eve? Adam. He made Eve out of Adam. Don't miss that. This is not some mythological story that is interesting to tell kids, and it's not really true. This is exactly what God did. He made the wife out of the husband. And look at his response in verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. To to Adam, the thing that was most noteworthy about her was that she came from him. This was his bones. This was his flesh. The two were from one. And he noticed that oneness And that's what stuck out to him the most. A man and a woman are not two different kinds of things that God is trying to figure out how to make fit together, no matter what your experience with the opposite sex leads you to believe. Okay, Men are not really from Mars, and women are not really from Venus. The truth is, we're actually custom-designed by God, a husband and wife, to become one. And it's a mystery, but it's a spectacular miracle. A husband and wife are two perfectly corresponding, custom-made creations of God. And they find their greatest expression when they're one together. That's why Moses, the author of Genesis, comments on this in verse 24 when he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Did you get that? They shall become one. One. Two, becoming one. Even the male and female anatomy is a picture of this, designed to custom fit. And while we're on the subject of male and female anatomy, which I knew you were hoping we'd get to in, in church this morning, let's look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, can you say naked in church? You can say naked in church, right? They were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because it is universal truth that everybody is uncomfortable being naked in front of other people, right? And if you've never had that wonderful joy, whether it's at a doctor's office or somebody walks into a changing room or whatever, um, maybe you've had that, that common recurring dream where somebody you know, thinks they're in public and they forgot to get dressed. Have you ever had that dream? That's the worst. I've had that dream multiple times. You show up on the first day of school or the first day of a new job or something, and there you are, and you look down and go, oh my gosh, I forgot to get dressed, right? And then there's this horrible feeling that you have, and it's like shame and embarrassment, and I just want to run and hide, and I just need to get away from everybody because there's something unnatural about this. This is not supposed to be this way. And yet, when Adam and Eve were together, God makes a point of telling us why, who cares? He makes a point of telling us they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And one of the reasons is because when sin comes into the picture, guess what they are? Ashamed of their nakedness. And they go and cover up, right? That's the beginning of a wall going up between a husband and a wife for the first time. And so they are naked and they are not ashamed. And, and the interesting thing is if you can think about that, that picture of, you know, that dream where you're naked in public and think of all the shame and the terrible feelings that you feel. But then ask yourself this question. When you're in the shower this morning, did you have all those strange feelings? No, you were just as naked. But what's the difference? You were the only one there, right? That's not weird. That's not uncomfortable. We can all do that. But it's it's when there's a stranger, when there's an outsider, when there's someone who ought not to be there. But by myself, I don't have any discomfort with all of that. You see, there is a difference between being two and being one. And, and, and when he made them one and there was perfection and there was no brokenness in their relationship, there was no need to be awkward because who am I with? I'm with my counterpart. I am with the one that fits me like a glove. I am with the one whom God custom designed and said the two shall become one. When God brings a man and a woman together as a husband and wife, they literally become one. Now, I'm one of these people that gets all upset when people overuse the word literally. I literally ate a thousand pounds of ribs at the barbecue. Really? Literally? That's how many you ate? But I'm not misusing the term. When I say that a husband and a wife literally become one. Now, I can't explain it. I don't know exactly how it happens. It's happening on the spiritual realm, but somehow what was two flames becomes one flame and burns as its own. Two literally become one. So, so this was Pat and this was Dave, right? And, and they continue to burn because this is still Pat and this is still Dave, but now there's this new thing called Dave Pat, right? Right? And, and, it, it, and it fits together like this, and it's a, it's a weaving together of a fabric, and that's what God has in mind. If, let's go to Ephesians now, because now we're going to be able to see and have some background and understanding for what God is actually having the audacity to say to us in Ephesians chapter 5 about how we're to live together as husband and wife. So in Ephesians chapter 5, New Testament after Galatians, take a minute and turn there and find it. Ephesians chapter 5, we've been in this book for months now, and we've actually been in this passage. This is the third straight week. And you may be thinking, come on, pastor, let's move on to something else. Let's go. This is too much. It's not too much, and I'm going to tell you why it's not too much. Because the foundation of our society is the family, and the foundation of the family is the marriage. And we do marriage lousy. That's the truth. And if we don't get this right, we're not going to get anything right. And so we have to understand this. And so when he speaks to us about marriage, this is important for all of us, whether we're married or not, because the principles here translate. And it begins in chapter 5, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've been covering this, and we've already established a couple of things. If you haven't heard those sermons, they're available online. I highly recommend that you listen to them to get the right context here. But we saw in verse 21 that the the foundation for this whole discussion is laid when he tells us to submit to one another, all people. And he's telling us that we need to be submissive individuals, And we're going to tear that apart a little bit, but we've already covered that in the last two weeks. And then beginning in verse 22, that's where we get to see how it works out in marriage. And he's going to give some specifics for marriage about how we submit to one another as a husband and a wife. Because there are specific directions that are given to a husband about how to be submissive in his marriage. And there are specific directions that are given to a wife about how to be submissive in her marriage. And they are not the same directions. And so we need to get this straight. So what I did was I created a a chart or a table, if you will, that kind of outlines this whole passage in terms of the specific things that God is asking the husband to do. I use the word asking. Wrong word. Commanding. Okay? There are certain things God is commanding the husband to do and there are certain things he's commanding the wife to do and they have their corollaries. So look on the left where it says wife. She is commanded by God to be subject to her own husband in everything. By the way, I want to just keep mentioning this. It says to her own husband. Somehow people get the idea that the Bible says women are to submit to men. It doesn't say that anywhere. It says a wife is to submit to her husband. Okay, so that's number one. So a wife is to be subject to her husband in everything. On the other hand... The husband is to sacrifice himself for his wife, verse 25. Then we look at the second thing. The wife is the body of her husband, in the metaphor. That's verses 23, and again in 28, the husband is the head of his wife. So wife, body, husband, head. It's very clear. Finally, the husband is to I mean, the wife is to respect her husband, and the husband is to love his wife as himself. Okay? Those are the three things and how they fit together. He's, asked, he's commanding three things of wives and three things of husband. Now, remember, submission is an attitude of the heart. It is not an action that you do. Submission has to do with the condition of your heart. It has to do with the idea where you uh, take the posture where you make others more important than yourself. It is the opposite of self-centeredness. It is the opposite of pride. And instead, it is what the Bible calls submission. It's an attitude of the heart, not an action that somebody takes. It's a willingness to consider others more important than yourselves. A lot of the confusion of this passage about submission, though, comes from the use of the word head. The husband is the head of the wife. It's a metaphor, but it's clear. The husband is the head of the wife. It does not say or even imply that the wife is the head of the husband. It says the husband is the head of the wife. And a whole lot of us, when we hear that, we kind of turn off our hearing aids at that point and go, I am not listening to this. Because we have an idea in our mind of what the word head means. In our culture, the word head can mean all kinds of things. In fact, I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, and there are over 20 separate definitions for the word head in Webster's, which is fascinating. And some of them are things like this, the top of the body, right? Um, the beginning of a river, the headwaters. Um, the boss, or the person in charge, the head of the company. Um, the intellect, the, 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 he's got a good head on his shoulders, that kind of an idea. Um, the first person in a procession, the head of a parade, right? So we have all these different ideas and there's a bunch more in there. It's interesting to look up, but not that helpful. And the reason it's not helpful is because all of those are based on 21st century American metaphors for what the word head means. This was not written to a 21st century American audience first. It was written to a first century Ephesian audience. And to them, head didn't mean the same things as head means to us. And so if you look up the word, it takes, to be honest with you, It's a lot of hard homework to grapple with what this passage means. It is a lot of Greek word study. And I did it. And I did it for hours. And if you want to do it for hours, you can. Or you can trust me on this. It's up to you. But in my study, here's what I determined. I determined what is the biblical meaning of the word head here in Ephesians. So I'm going to give you the biblical definition of the word head here in Ephesians. And it's the cornerstone of all of this, so listen carefully. I'm going to give you this. It's, it's important, so I'm going to get a drum roll and everything, all right? Head means head. <laughs> Did you get that? Are you writing this down, right? Head means head. It means head, the top part of the body. That's what it means in this Greek word and in this context. It's the only thing that it can mean. And if you want, I'll, I'll give you a bunch of notes on this. But it's a metaphor, guys. The Bible is filled with metaphors. For example, the Bible says that um, God is our father. Does that mean he's your biological parent? No. It's a metaphor for the role that he plays in our lives. The Bible is filled with metaphors, and frankly, we make a lot of mistakes with the metaphors of the Bible, and that's where we get a lot of our heretical ideas. So I want to make sure we get this one right, and I want to make sure we get it right because there's a lot writing on this because our marriages depend upon it. The husband is the head of his wife according to this biblical metaphor. Also, in this same passage, it says... Christ is the head of the church. So he's saying, just as Christ is the head of the church and the church is the body of Christ, so the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is the body of her husband. And if we continue looking at how this biblical metaphor of head is used, we won't look it up, you can write it down in your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says that God is the head of Christ. God the Father is the head of Christ the Son. So whatever it means for the husband to be head of the wife, it it has to correspond to what it means for Christ to be the head of the church, and it has to correspond to what it means for the father to be the head of the son in the Godhead. Okay? So this is not a way of describing one who is better than another. It's not a way of describing one who has more value than another. It is not a way of describing one who is smarter than another. Because if that was true, how could we say that God is the head of Christ? We gotta remember this. We think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? We think Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Guys, that's wrong. It's not hierarchical. The Father and Son and Holy Spirit are one, the three become one, right? I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But I know this. The father is, uh, is an individual. The son is an individual. And the spirit is an individual. And there are three persons of the Trinity and only one God. I don't know. Go figure it out. But whatever it means that the father is the head of the son is correspondent to this passage of what it means for the husband to be the head of the wife. And so this is not about one who is better than the father's not better than the son this is not one who is smarter than the son, the father is not smarter than the son this is not about one who comes before the father doesn't even come before the son this is about oneness this is about becoming one that's what the metaphor is about now think about it a head and a body are two separate things you never confuse your head for your body or your body for your head. And yet, together, they make one. Does that make sense? And, and that's the metaphor he's trying to use. What he's trying to get across here is not about who's in charge and where the authority lies and who has to answer to whom. What he's trying to get across here is that when God takes a man and a woman, two separate entities, and makes them a husband and a wife, when the two come together, they become one. And to separate those two things is to separate a head from a body. It's gruesome. It's horrific. It's unthinkable. And if you were to separate a head from a body, which one wins, the head or the body? Neither. And yet, in our society, we very easily, in many cases... Just say, well, we're just going to dissolve this marriage. We're going to cut this head off, this body, and that's okay. We can glue it onto another one later or something. Now, listen, I want to be very careful. I am not insensitive to the realities that many of us in this room have been touched deeply by divorce. Maybe you've been through a divorce. Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe your parents are divorced. Maybe someone dear to you, maybe one of your children is divorced. I am not making sweeping statements about your divorce, your divorce situation, but here's what I can say. The Scripture says these words exactly. I hate divorce, says the Lord. God hates divorce. Now, are there certain instances, very few, that God gives in Scripture where He allows for a divorce? Yes, there are. And... And is he saying by I hate divorce that we should just let our, our broken relationships continue to be broken and we should just continue to hurt one another? No, he's not. But he hates divorce. Because every time two have become one and then they become two, a head is cut from a body. He's trying to make a point about what it is to be one. God hates divorce. It's a gruesome picture. Think about the biblical definition of marriage that we saw in Genesis 2. He takes two and makes us one. You say, how does that work? How can two be one? Well, it's a mystery, it says. It's a mystery. It's not like anything, but we can do the best we can to understand it. And the thing that's interesting is not the only example of this. There are many examples of this type of thing in the scripture. In fact, the Bible is a very unique math book. When it comes to math in the Bible, it's different than math anywhere else. So let me give you some examples and you can follow along with what's on the screen. Okay, One equals one. That's pretty simple. Are you staying with me, math whizzes? You got this? One equals one. It's very simple. I am me and I'm not anybody else. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship or God's unique creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So every one of us is unique. Every one of us is individual. There's a place where you stop and someone else begins, okay? One equals one. But then where it gets interesting is when we look in Genesis chapter two, when it says one plus one equals one. This is God's math. One plus one equals one. I take a, hu- a man and a woman, when they become a husband and a wife, they become one, even while continuing to exist as individuals. And the math gets even more interesting. One plus one plus one plus one plus one and on for a long time equals one. That's a picture of the church. Romans chapter 12. We who are many are all separate members, but we are one body. Your kidney is not your liver, your liver is not your eye, your eye is not your foot, your foot is not your nose. And yet, when you put all the things that make up your body together, the many members become one person, right? It's an illustration of what it is to be the body of Christ. When you come to be a follower of Jesus, you become one with the rest of us. I know that's not great news to everybody, but you become one with the rest of us. It's not just that you know the other people in the body of Christ. There's a bunch of people in the body of Christ you've never even met. But the body of Christ is one body. And he, Jesus, is the head and we are the body. Another example of this is the Trinity, as I said. Three persons, one God. One plus one plus one equals three. Another example is Christ and the church. He is the head and we are the body. So there are several examples of this in Scripture where we realize that um, there is a mystical, spiritual, but literal sense in which we are one with someone else. We can no longer be completely defined just by ourselves. So let's not read into this passage. The Greek word in Ephesians 5, which is translated as head, means head. And the Greek word that is translated as body means body. You're getting this. And together, a head and a body, while maintaining their distinction, become one. And remember, we're not talking about a man and a woman. We're talking about a husband and a wife, okay? So if you are single and male or female, either way, doesn't matter, you are not somehow incomplete without someone else. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Single people are complete. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are his workmanship. You alone, one equals one. You're complete. And you could go the rest of your life never getting married and still be complete. But once you are married, you can never be complete apart from your spouse again. Does that make sense? A husband and a wife, two become one. And sometimes we're single, for a season. Maybe it's a longer season than we want, but we're single for a season. And let's not think that somehow we're just waiting for the day when finally we find ourselves in that other person who's going to somehow make us complete. And let's not think that perhaps if you've lost a spouse, that now that you're a widow or a widower, that you're somehow incomplete, even though probably not a day goes by for anyone who's lost a spouse, which there's not something that feels like it's missing from you. And the reason is because you became one with somebody. And I know this is kind of a a gruesome picture, but if you've ever had this happen where you, um, well, this happened to me. I was a kid. I was riding a bike in the summertime in just shorts. No shoes, no shirt, no nothing. And the bike crashed and I slid across the pavement, the asphalt, the street in front of my house from one sidewalk to the other until I hit the curb and stopped. The whole right side of my body was devoid of skin. Now this was a problem on many levels. But for me, the main level was my mother had just gone to the store and said to us, don't you boys go outside. And so my older brother, who loved me so much, said, we can't let mom know about this. And so he went to the medicine cabinet and he got a roll of gauze. And he rolled it all over and then put me in a sweatshirt and sweatpants and hoped that mom would not notice. It's 100 degrees, it's the summer, I'm looking like the kid from uh, Christmas Story and I can't walk. And my mother comes home and says, what happened? And, you know, we say, gee, I don't know. I don't know, I just woke up like this. And... um, (laughs) she she begins to unwrap the gauze after about an hour right Have you ever had that cuz you know what happens the flesh begins to interweave with the bandage and when you pull that bandage off you are opening a wound freshly right i know it's a gruesome illustration but don't miss the point when a, when a man and a woman become a husband and a wife, there is a weaving together that naturally, appropriately takes place. That's why divorce is so awful. That's why it hurts so much. When you separate a head from the body, neither one wins. So after all this, let me wrap it up. Let me say this. Head does not mean boss. Head does not mean leader. Head does not mean thinker. And body does not mean assistant and it doesn't mean follower, and it doesn't mean feeler. Head means head. Body means body. And to separate the two is a gruesome and horrific tragedy. Yes, there are some specific roles that are, that are given to the wife that are not given to the husband. Remember the table, right? So we can, I'm not trying to get away from any of that. That's God's best for us. There are some specific roles that are given to the wife that are not given to the husband and some specific roles that are given to the husband that are not given to the wife and and either one of them is very difficult, frankly. But that's what God calls us to be. But imagine a picture of a husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church and makes his life about lifting her up rather than holding her down. And show in that picture a wife who who loves her husband in such a way that she respects him and submits to him. And what you have is a picture that God has designed from the beginning of time and given to us as a gift. And when we resist it, we're resisting God's best. And we're paying the price as a culture. That's what God had in mind. A godly wife does not try to control her husband. She does not try to manipulate her husband. She does not try to deceive her husband in order to get her own way. Why would she do that? She's hurting herself when she hurts him. So she lovingly submits to God by submitting to her husband and respecting him. And a godly husband doesn't try to control his wife. He doesn't disregard his wife. He doesn't hold his wife down. He lifts her up and sacrifices himself for her. He's devoted to her above all other human beings. And he will make any personal sacrifice for her benefit. So, I'm just going to cut to the chase. If you are a husband, it is time to quit thinking about all the ways your wife is letting you down and get to work being a husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. It is time for us husbands to begin to set the example for our children and for a whole generation of watching people and say, this is the way to love your wife. It's sacrificial. It is humble. It is serving. And when it involves leading, it's leading. But it is never holding down. And it is time for those of you who are wives to let go Of the frustration that so naturally comes when your husband is not everything you hoped he would be. And when he has... Some, some leadership in your life that you're not comfortable with and you think, what if he's getting this wrong? To be able to say, I will submit to a God who is perfect and loves me and put me in relationship to this husband and made me one. It is time for us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. It is time for us as wives to respect and submit to our husbands as God has called us to. And as that begins to happen, you will see a, a, a movement begin. Where one by one, God will change marriages. And as he changes marriages, he will change families. And as he changes families, he will change communities. And as he changes communities, he will change the world. That's why I wanted to spend so much time on this. If we don't get this right, the stakes are very high. God has something better in mind. Some of you are married and you have allowed bitterness to build up, or maybe you've just drifted apart, and you've just allowed yourself to drift apart. And, and now for anybody to look, you have the same address, but other than that, the two are two, not one. Some of us have made the mistake, which is so easy to make, that when children come along, the children become the focal point of the family instead of the marriage being the focal point of the family. And then guess who suffers? The marriage and the children. And God says the marriage is the foundation of the family. And from the strength of a good marriage, we can raise good children. So if you find yourself in that place and you've made some of those kinds of mistakes, God has something better in mind. And it all begins with chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another. It's all about submission. And by the way, counseling is not a dirty word. There are times when we need help. To live this out, and if that's true in your marriage, have the courage and the love to look one another in the eye and say, Hey, let's go get some help. The marriage is tough, but the question remains Are you going to trust God enough to make your marriage a priority and to learn to live in submission, or are you going to keep doing what you've been doing and keep getting what you've been getting? The way that you answer that question will determine the future, not only of your marriage, but of your family, and perhaps for generations. Let's stand and pray together.